This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that loves any excuse for a good anniversary celebration. Well, almost. Hey, break out the champagne. Hold that thought. Oh. I'm Andrew Page, and with me is Scott Phillips. G'day, Andrew. G'day, fools. It's good to be with you. It is, as always. Even though. Even though we're going to be celebra- celebrating? Uh, commemorating. Commemorating. Commiserating. A couple of interesting anniversaries. Let's do it. Uh, on the podcast today, what can investors learn from the smashing success of the Everest? What, the mountain? The, the horse race. Right. Uh, the 30th anniversary of Black Tuesday. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, are we in for another crash? It's today. We're recording got, this on got, Friday got the 20th of October. Yes. 30 years ago today. Yes, indeed. And All lots right. of interesting facts and tidbits there. Speaking of crashing and terrible things. Well, the end of an era for Aussie car manufacturing. Holden is closing its plans. Indeed, a sad day. And I'm going to get on my high horse and... Give you guys a good rant, just because I can and I want to. <laughs> because I've got a soapbox. <laughs> exactly. And you're going to sit there and you're going to enjoy if it. If people are stupid enough to open the microphones and let us talk, we're going to talk. <laughs> and fr- frankly, week on week, either you're going to rant or I'm going to rant because that's just what we do. Whether it's justified or not. Podcast listeners, you are doing us an app. In fact, you're not doing us a favor. You're doing our colleagues a favor because the more we rant here, the less we rant back at that's the office. It. And it's, they thank you for it's it. It's cathartic. It's therapeutic. All Mate, those good things. Tell me about the Everest. The Everest is a really, well, so it's a really, really big mountain. Really? Yeah, yeah, but massive. <laughs> oh, Actually, fun, so funnily okay, enough, next Triple M's own Matty Johns is climbing Mount Everest as we speak. Wow. Which is pretty cool. But that's not the Everest we're talking mm-hmm. about. We're talking about the horse race. Okay. Where's it at? The race that didn't quite stop the nation, but made a squillion dollars instead. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the brains behind it might be hoping it rivals the Melbourne Cup at some point. Oh, yeah. Hundred years or so worth of history to, to to take that mantle, but the richest horse race and really really interesting structure, and that's why we want to talk about it today. Well, tell me all about it because you know a lot more about it than I do. Which is not saying much, but I'm uh, the guy who go, you know, uh, when when we were talking about horses last week, I was uh, saying, "Here, boy, here, boy." <laughs> so I'm, I'm an expert on They're horses. All those four-legged things are the same. Aren't They're they? all the same. All right, the Everest is a horse race, and interestingly enough, it was kind of done. Lots of parallels to, ironically, professional gambling. Okay. The interesting thing about this is each of those, each of the stalls, each of the slots in the race Mm. was sold to a bidder who basically bid for the right to put their own horse or someone else's horse into the race on their behalf. No, no, no. I'm going to stop you there because I'm super naive here. What is normally, how does that normally Right. Well, effectively, normally you get invited to take part in a race. If they're a big race, if it's a little race, I'll take any, any anyone who wants to come and turn up. Right. You normally have to pay a, a a not unreasonable entrance fee. Mm -hmm. And then there's prize money at the end. Okay. So that's kind of how it works. The Melbourne Cup has big prize money, of course, and you have to pay a lot more to get in. Mm -hmm. But broadly, it's still the same kind of idea. The handicappers work out who can enter the race um, based on certain criteria and they, they let that happen. Okay. In this case, it was a very, very different thing. They basically said, look, let's start with a, let's just sell this, incredibly expensive, lots of lots of prize, $10 million pool for prize money, I want to say. Right. And so they basically said, look, anyone who wants to bid for these slots can bid for them. And so you and I could we bid for one? And not then, you and I, mate. Not, uh, neither you nor I have enough money to bid for a slot in this particular <laughs> But conceptually, In another yes. universe? In another universe. Well, you and I bid for when one? When we're independently wealthy and not doing a podcast, we, we, would be, we would be lounging on our yachts in Greece and, right. and instructing Jeeves to go and put a, a, a bid on for a slot in this race. <laughs> okay. So and, we do that. Yeah. And, and then, then we can fill that with any horse jockey combo we, we right. want. Right. Okay. Well, if, I mean, you've got to make the horse got to want to do, of course, right. and the jockey, blah, blah, blah. But yes, exactly. You can put, you can nominate your horse to take your slot. Mm-hmm. The trainers and the owners of the horses get to A, say, well, look, we'd love to take it, please. Mm-hmm. Or they can say, well, we will take that slot, but we want a certain share of the prize money because okay. the prize money in the first instance goes to the slot owner. 
uh, not the connections of the uh, horse. And this is where it's different. Okay. So normally okay. the connections of the horse, the owners mm-hmm. would say, mm-hmm. I want to put my horse, uh, Andrew's Follies, into the Melbourne Cup. Yep. I'm going to pay my ex tens and hundreds of thousand dollars worth of entry fee. Mm-hmm. And I'll get all the I'll get all the uh, all the prize money. Yep. In this case, the slot is owned by somebody else, and so and it's up to them to negotiate. Right. Great. Both who, which horse they get, how much they give that horse, all that stuff, mm. and that's why this is a really interesting difference. It's it's most akin to if you ever watch high stakes poker. I was going to say it sounds familiar. Right. Yep. So the poker players that we all focus on are winning and losing big money. Yep. What goes on behind the scenes, and why we're talking about it in a finance podcast, is because most of those poker players have a backer or a series of backers. Who basically stake those players? They, they give them some them. money right yep. to play with, and they're playing the odds themselves. Right. So in this case, what well, we think about the, oh, it's easy to think about professional poker players as the akin to professional athletes who are out yep. there working for their own money. It's a, it's a different scenario here because they don't get all the winnings, they don't suffer all the losses. Mm. They say, "I'm a good poker player. Mm-hmm. If you want some of my winnings, come and stake me, come and bankroll me for my money, mm-hmm. and we'll make this work." Right. And so you get this idea of kind of the backer and the player, or in this case, the backer and the the horse or the mm-hmm. jockey, mm-hmm. who are who are in concert trying to win the prize money that's on offer. So it's okay. a really interesting way to go about and to think about how you think about the kind of the the, the financial components of poker or of horse racing. Mm. It just it, it's frankly. Rather than buying the horse outright, you buy a slot, you back a horse. You, you, you're you taking a much more nuanced approach to investing yep. in the potential for winning, whether it's poker or horse racing, yep. than just saying, I'll be the poker player or I'll buy the horse. Mm. You're choosing to back a particular horse and then sharing the proceeds accordingly. And you can switch and change as you see fit. I right. Suppose. And so yeah. we think about poker, you know, people who back poker players normally aren't just bankrolling one guy. Mm. They're bankrolling half a dozen guys. Gotcha. Or each poker player has half a dozen backers all putting in a bit of money each. So it's very much, you know, when you get to it, it's not so different, very different, of course, on one level, but not so different to buying shares in a company. Yeah. The poker player has a whole lot of shares in that poker player. Mm-hmm. They're out there doing work on behalf of the owners in this case, or the, the bankrollers. Yep. And, and again, as, as an investor, you win or lose based on the performance of the investment you're making, which in this case happens to be in a slot at the races or in a poker player at the tables. Very interesting stuff. Really, really cool. And it was a smashing success. They had massive lines. People love the idea, the prize money, the media coverage. I wouldn't be at all surprised if this is the birth of, of a new iconic race for Australia. Yeah, very interesting. Well, we'll mm. keep, we'll keep uh, eyes on that. Now, maybe, maybe one day we'll have a slot. Maybe a one day. Uh, isn't that like uh, tearing up $100 bills while having a cold shower? I've, I've heard it <laughs> like buying a boat, you know. It's one of those things. It's yeah, a very romantic cool idea, but then you just bleed. And we all get to go to the cash. owner's enclosure. We've got, you know, the, 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 the full filly. No? I'm going to pass, mate. Oh, I, right. I like money. Um, <laughs> Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. So let's let's speaking of money and uh, how quickly that can disappear. Indeed, thirty years ago today, it was the twentieth of October, nineteen eighty-seven. Nineteen eighty-seven. You were probably only forty or something at that stage. (laughs) Um, Sorry, mate. Um, Thirty-five. Very much. Right. Okay. And and uh, we had the biggest Mm. one-day crash. In history, twenty-three percent on the U.S. market on their nineteenth, our twentieth of October. Yep, enormous and it, it just an absolute overnight pummeling of the markets. And and it was a phenomenal. It it was really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, it was a, a very the magnitude of the crash was mm. just huge. Two, it started in Hong Kong and then just reverberated around the world. Didn't but it? when we look at the tech wreck, when we look at the GFC, when we look at the tulip bubble, when yeah. we look at yeah. all of these market crashes. Obviously, it's not it's not obvious at the time, but in hindsight, the boffins can look back and go, ah, it was all about 
debt. Right, uh, it right, was right. all about ridiculous Mania. valuations. Yep. It was all about this. And there's, there's really wonderful lessons. The fascinating thing about 1987 is there's not really an obvious cause for it. Yeah. So I'm going to take it back half a step because the 23% fall, unlike all of those things you talked about, unlike the GFC, unlike the dot-com boom, unlike all of that stuff, the fall that happened happened in one day. Yeah. So the GFC was a massive meltdown. The market lost 45 odd percent of its value, mm. but over an extended period of over weeks and months, just bits and bits chipped off, chipped off, chipped off. Yep. The market lost confidence. Investors walked away. It was kind of this, this kind of rolling, rumbling avalanche, if you like, but it almost in slow motion. Yep. Yep. In this case, this was far more like just a piece of uh, an ice sheet breaking off all of a sudden. It literally just cracked and disappeared. And yeah. it was, you know, a quarter of the market's value among friends, call, call it 25%, 23%. Yep. A quarter of the market's value, literally, in the space of one trading day, six hours, give or take, gone. Completely gone. And yeah, it, it, it's one of these things too that, that um, I, I think... Very understandably, a lot of people sort of point to as reasons as to why the stock market is so dangerous. Yeah. And frankly, it's a very, very good example if you're if you're approaching the stock market in a particular way. I think um, this is why it was so scary because you asked the question about the why. Mm. And normally you can say, well, if you'd just seen the amount of debt, if you'd just seen the amount of speculation, if you'd just seen the geopolitical challenges. Yeah. And frankly, they're always, I think, in that they're obvious in hindsight, as you say, yeah. you know, that people always not diagnose these things after the fact. No one saw the subprime crisis coming except everyone claims in hindsight to have seen it. The 87 crash, though, was, was interesting because it was literally effectively just a stock market only crash. There was mm. no broader economic mm. issue, at least at the time. There were mm. subsequent recessions, but not because of it. And mm. it wasn't caused by this. So you have this really strange scenario where the 87 crash happens. Everything just falls out of bed. Yeah. And no one knows. No one sees it coming. No one knows why it's happening. Yep. All they see on their screens is price just falling and falling and falling and falling. There's a, a really cool um, anecdote on Twitter this morning of some guy saying, um, he said, I want to sell, I want to sell IBM. And the guy said, I'll give you 98 bucks a share. And the, the trader says, well, it says 119 on my computer. He says, well, sell it to your computer then. You know, <laughs> right, and, yeah. and that was what it was. It, everything yeah. was falling so fast, so quickly. And this is the very, very, very early stages of computerized trading, yeah. which we'll come back to. Yeah. And so at that point, it's kind of like, dude, you want to make the sale, don't you? Yeah. And when the market's in free fall, you can imagine, imagine six hours feels like nothing and it is. Yeah. But imagine you're at a desk mm. and the time's going past at 60 seconds a minute, which yeah. feels really, really slow in the event. Yeah. And all you're seeing in front of you is prices falling yeah. and falling further. So at five past 10, at half past 10, mm. at 11 o'clock, mm. at 20 past 11, mm. at 20 to 12. And every time, you, every time you look at your computer, there's more red, there's more falls, there's more. Mm. And you think, where the hell does this stop? Yeah. And so you're saying, well, I want to get out of company X, in this case it was IBM. Mm. I, I, I want to sell someone because I just don't want, to, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Someone's offering you 20% less than it was said on the computer screen. You're like, well, dude, you either want it or Take you don't. it. Take it. It's a yeah. buyer's market, yeah. right? Yeah. And especially when you don't know what's going on. Like right. You, you're going to assume the worst. Fear kicks in. Here's the other thing. So if you had bought at the top of the market, it would have taken a lot. It took it was early 1994 before the all ordinaries, and this is just a price index without without factoring in dividends. Yeah, before, which we should, but we won't. We should, but um, we don't because we couldn't easily find the data, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um, uh, but it, yeah. The hours of painstaking preparation we put in this program, it's hard to believe we couldn't <laughs> find like, the information. We've got to fire our researchers, <laughs> mate. Um, it took seven long years for that to come back. And even yeah. then it touched it, and then it's sort of weighing down again. And it's one of those things that people will often say, well... Look, even long-term investing is dangerous because I could have done all of the right things, yep. but it took all of that time to come back. But here's the thing. It's, it's, a, it's a question of where you're sort of picking your starting point. So if we take the top of the 87 crash, yep. so the top of the market before the crash, it took seven years to make the money back. Seven years to make your money back. Right. And then it was there for a second and then it went away again. And then you had to wait a little bit longer for but, it to come back. But here's the other interesting thing. At the start of 1987, yep. the market was doing its thing. It rallied up. It actually almost doubled right. in the, and then it 
fell away. So it kind of, if you happen to go to Antarctica for that year, <laughs> you would have looked at the market before you left. You would yep. look at the market when you came back and it was about the same. There was not a huge difference. So I don't know if we have the numbers here for the ASX, but I, I do know in the US, the market actually closed up 2% for 1987. It's amazing. So January 1 to December 31, market's up. 2%, yes. despite the biggest fall of all time, the 23% fall on the 20th of 19th of October there. Um, and, and this is, so, so you asked about the causes. I think, I think there's two things. One is that, yes, there was a, there was an astonishing rise during 87, which really kind of to some degree actually mirrors the 2007 rise. Yeah, and yeah. that was, people got a little bit carried away. So there wasn't a mania as such, but Irrational when share exuberance. prices double mm -hmm. in the space of 10 months, really, uh, if it falls back, you, you can't really say you're surprised, right? So yep. part, part of it is simply that, that, that things got way overheated and, so that's important. The second is that there is a general belief or supposition because we can't mm. prove any of this stuff. Yeah. I mentioned before this was the beginning of computerized trading and there was very much a sense that this may well have been a case of computers who are programmed to sell when the prices fall, mm -hmm. actually exacerbating that problem. And so, in fact, causing it in the first place. Right. They, they, they were causing prices to rise so dramatically as well. Correct, correct. So you sort of add those two together. It's possibly part of the reason there is, as I said, there is no clear cut. No one can actually say, even with the benefit of 30 years hindsight, this is what caused it. But there's a general belief that one of the largest contributors was probably the early days of computerized trading when the algorithms weren't very smart. The programming was very... Or relatively, uh, I won't say amateurish, that's, that's unfair, but certainly simplistic and, mm. and not allowing for the things that would subsequently happen. Now, mate, when we were doing our highly detailed uh, due diligence- Hours in, and hours of in, research. In preparation for this podcast. Over a- We, 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 we logged onto a website, we, we, um, we brought up the chart and it actually took a moment to find the crash. <laughs> One of the biggest crashes, it like did. actually, where is it? Now, giveaway was that it was the 1987 crash. So we probably <laughs> we probably should have looked a little closer at the x-axis. If only there was a way to put the year into this spreadsheet. But I think both of us were a little bit surprised. We just thought we'll just eyeball it. We'll just go back and you, you'll you'll just see where it is. Yep. But again, this is an audio uh, medium, so it's it's not gonna we're not gonna be able to do it any justice. But do yourself a favor, jump yep. onto Google Finances, bring it up, and you will see that these these tiny little tick up and tick down. Andrew, I've got an even better idea. Okay. Google Finances for amateurs. All right. People should jump onto Twitter. And go to at the motley fool au. Oh, there you one go. Word, at the motley fool au. I tweeted it this morning. Actually, you also go to at tmf scott p. Choose your choose your Twitter account. I tweeted it this morning. I will right now as we speak, due to the miracle of modern technology, retweet that. So if you as you're listening to this, go to at the motley fool au, and you will find a copy of that chart. We can almost maybe if you look really closely find the crash. It, it's just it's just amazing, isn't it? Um, so what did we learn? <laughs> This, this, this is a beautiful Dorothy Dixon, mate. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I was, I was asked that also on Twitter this morning. I don't spend all of my time on Twitter, but when I do, as the meme says, I, I like to ruminate as to the causes of the crash. Um, and, and it's, it's a really, it's a really good question. You know, the, the, what did we learn is, is probably the, it's the right question, but there is no, there's no good answer because the, the reality is, and I said this in less than 140 characters, I'm, I don't like quite. If you myself, can't say it in I'm... less than 140 characters, it's not worth saying. Let's exactly. So we were at least 15 minutes over time already. <laughs> but I said, you know, so the question was, what did we learn? And I said, markets are volatile and unpredictable. Yep. Investors overreact yep. and leverage kills. Yep. yep. Wait and a those sec. are very. <laughs> Didn't we know that already? <laughs> That's the point, right? Yeah. Is that what, what did we learn from 87? Nothing that we should have known in 1985. Yeah. What did we learn from the GFC, from the dot-com crash, from the. All of these things over again. Yeah. You know, we, if the financial memory is probably the shortest memory, I think, in, in, in recorded human history, our, our inability to really learn from that past um, 
Markets have always been unpredictable since the tulip bubble you mentioned yeah, already. Yeah. Leverage, of course, it can kill. By definition, it, it, it's yeah. leveraging, it's, it's magnifying your, your gains and losses. Mm. And investors overreact. Otherwise, markets would go up in a nice, clean, straight line. So to your point, yes, absolutely. This was this was madness that it happened, that the rise happened, madness that the fall happened, madness that people overreacted. But I want to take you back to one thing, Andrew, before we move mm -hmm. on and okay. we need to. Yep. Is the, and this, it's important that we spend a bit of time on this because this is kind of one of the most seminal moments of, of recent financial history. Yeah. You make the point about the 2% gain during that year, right? right. The, humans love thinking about the tops and bottoms. We kind of mentally say, where's the top? Where's the bottom? What's the difference? Mm. Losing 23% is the headline, right? Mm. And we do it and everyone does mm. it. If you'd have done nothing but A, hold your shares, you made money during 87. Yep. And if you'd been buying every month, 100 bucks a month, right through 83, mm. 84, 85, 86, 87, mm. and onwards after that, mm. the peak and trough were such short periods of time. Yeah. If you'd have bought for five years before and five years after, only during one of those years were you buying at what subsequently seemed to be inflated prices. Mm. And so bearing the, the, the grief of that fall mm. was the price of massive, massive, massive compound returns. And that's the important part. If you just look at the top and bottom, of course, you're going to say that's terrible. Sure. If you'd simply invest money the entire time and ignored the index, as you say, mm. you would have made a squillion bucks. And that's the key message here, I think. It's investors. that old saying. It's so well worn, but it's so good. It's that it's not timing the market. It's time in the market. Oh, hey, hey. Love it. You should write coffee table books. I really should. <laughs> real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Let's move on, mate. There was another anniversary of sorts. Is uh, The last uh, Holden is rolling off the assembly line. Yeah, today, not right? anniversary yet, but it will be in future years. This is the end literally yesterday. The 19th Thursday was the day the last car was built at the Holden plant. 69 years after the first one rolled off. Indeed, workers down tools yesterday. The car is being unveiled, released, uh, whatever, whatever fancy word you want to mm -hmm. use. A bit of a bittersweet day. Um, I, I I know you're a Tesla man, but I, I grew up a Holden fan. Uh, watching watching Peter Brock do laps of the Peter Perfect laps of Mount Panorama yep. uh, in his Holdens with the occasional little bit of diversion to Ford, but we won't talk about the Sierra. <laughs> um, it, it, it's 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 you know, football meat pies, kangaroos, and Holden cars, right? It is it is literally that iconic. Um, Ford as well, obviously manufacturing here, and I won't take sides in the the blue oval versus the red line debate. But what I will say is Holden was Australia's car company as much as it was owned by GM. And so to some degree, this is kind of a, a sad day for all of us. It it's a recognition sad. that yeah. the, the, the past is no longer here. The future is mm. not in manufacturing in Australia. Um, that has its downsides. It has its has detractors. Mm. It's also just kind of the reality. It's probably 30 years too late. We probably should have, shouldn't have been manufacturing cars over the last 20 or 30 years. But in any case, it's the end of an era. People out of work, uh, suppliers out of work. Uh, towns and cities that really will feel the brunt of this for a couple of years to come. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough time, but it probably is something that was well overdue, I think. Well, this is what I want to dig into. So there, there's very real human consequences to all of this. Yeah. And, and I, we, we don't want to sort of gloss over that, but you, you said that it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have gone as long as it did. What, what do you mean by that? Why not? Yeah, I think I, look, I do want to repeat, and I said it a bit myself and you've said it then, but you know, we're, we're a finance podcast, mm -hmm. but, um, we're the first to win, and, and frankly, one of the loudest voices to say that finance doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's all part of a society, and, and there are real and serious human impacts here. So, yep. whatever we say now, subsequently, is all about the finance realities, and they are realities. Um, but we're not we're not blind or, or, or unaware of the human cost. Yeah. The, the challenge for Australian manufacturing is that we are exactly the wrong country to do low value add manufacturing. Why? Because we have two massive disadvantages okay the first is our average wages are very high yep. and that's great for standards of living so yeah. we should never <laughs> there are those who will say if our wages were low we'd make more cars 
It's like, yep, absolutely, dude. And mm-hmm. if you want to go on fewer holidays and ha- and work Saturdays and get paid half what you get paid, then by all means, line up at the queue. Yep. But it'll be a very, very short queue because yep. that's just the reality. As a country, we enjoy Ask what much- they think about that in Bangladesh, right? Right. We enjoy a much, much higher standard of living because of that. Yep. And if that means we don't manufacture quite as many things, that's a really easy trade-off to make. Mm-hmm. But we are a high-wage country. The second is we're a small country in population terms, and we're a bloody long way from almost anywhere else. And so... If you think about the large car plants, the Volkswagen plants in Argentina and South America, uh, South Africa, I should mm-hmm. say, um, the, the, the Korean and, and, and Thai car companies and the Thai, Korean and Thai car plants, uh, Indonesia, the places that very, very large amounts, numbers of cars are being made, mm. exported right around the world. They are making 10, 20, 50 times the number of cars we make. Mm. So if you think about the combination of a high per hour wage mm-hmm. and a much higher, uh, sorry, much lower in Australia, scale benefit mm-hmm. in other words if you're only making 100 cars a day versus 1000 cars a day the scale benefit just doesn't accrue to you and so you've got countries that are closer to their markets mm-hmm. with much higher scale with much lower worker costs and the question really is why would an Australian car be competitive and the answer is it can't be and it won't be and that's the the fundamental problem it's been the case for 30 years governments have propped up the car industry for three decades and more with subsidy after subsidy after subsidy the cost per job is in the millions of dollars yeah. it's 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 unaffordable it's, it's unreasonable from a policy perspective mm. notwithstanding the human impact well even you know, factoring I'm, in- not, I'm not going to get paid a million bucks by the government to keep my job if, if, if all of a sudden someone decides the motley fool is a bad business and right. we don't want to give financial advice in australia no one's going to pay the motley fool a million bucks a year to keep me in a job and, mm. and nor, they, nor should they well, that, um, it's one that's of, the hard part. It's one of the wonderful things about capitalism is we have these these feedback mechanisms that, that sort of drive efficiencies and improve standards of living all around. And really, as, as a, in Australia, we found a better way to make cars. And the way that we make cars now is that we dig up a bunch of iron and we put it on a boat and then that boat comes back with cars on it. It is much, much more efficient to make a car that way. And when I say make a car that way, it's all about comparative advantages. We're really good at mining. We've got some really wonderful resources. We've got some really good technologies. We can produce at some of the lowest costs that are Mm -hmm. out there uh, and certainly better than Japan can. Um, So wouldn't it make sense for us to do things that we're really, really, really good at? Yep. And we'll do that. And, you know, over in Japan, you guys do what you're really, really good at and we'll trade with each other and you get what you need. We get what we need and we do it in a far, far, far more efficient manner. I'm going to try really hard not to bang on here um, because it's not my rant, it's your rant this week. Um, (laughs) So the whole neoliberalism thing, right? There's plenty of people out there in politics and in the media and in the commentary now who will decry neoliberalism. And I don't want to get involved in that because I don't don't have any interest in in name calling or or taking sides. Um, As it turns out, it probably has gone too far, but that's not the key issue. Mm -hmm. The, the, the simple reality is that free trade, international trade, allows us to exchange our, our mutual benefits, our mutual advantages, the whole idea of capitalism. From the very first day, someone said, I'll swap you a grain of rice if you swap me a grain of wheat. The very first day that happened, the reality was, if I can, if I can make cars and you can grow wheat, mm. or if I've got great tourism and you've got great manufacturing, mm. then we should absolutely each try and do that. If mm. we had to try and have our own rice growing, and cotton growing mm. and wheat growing mm. and wool growing, as well as our own car manufacturing, computer manufacturing, mm. we couldn't do it all. No. We'd end up being, we'd end up being communist Russia. And yep. the, the simple, the simple reality all, is yeah. we, we don't have that advantage. Yeah. We are far, far better off exchanging with Japan, as you say, or America or China, what we're good at and have a lot of and can do well and cheaply yep. Yep. with what they have a lot of, they do well and do cheaply. Yeah. As it turns out, we've got really cheap access to iron ore. Mm-hmm. They've got really cheap access to labor. Mm. Now we can say to them, you, you mine your own iron ore, yeah. And build our own cars. We'll mine our own or build our own cars. Mm. It doesn't work that way. And we are our standard of living, although it's imperceptible from day to day, mm-hmm. our standard of living is much, much higher 
by virtue of international trade and even interstate trade for yeah. what it's worth yeah. than if we had to do everything in our own backyard. Now, there are environmental and economic consequences. There are absolutely social consequences and yeah. governments should, as I've said many times before, be alert to that and being responsible to that, fixing those sort of problems that that exist and occur as a result. Mm. But it's not an excuse to go back, close the borders and say, no, thanks very much, Jack. We'll do it all ourselves. Otherwise, guess what, guys? We're going back to the 1950s with a standard of living that says one television in black and white, one car if you're lucky, one telephone at the end of the street. If you want that, that's great. Just be careful what you wish for. And we can actually do it in a way where we ease some of these frictions as well. As you mentioned, there's been a lot of money poured into trying to prop up these things. You take a fraction of that. Oh, you give yeah. some very generous um, severance packages to to the people who are most directly affected. You pump a bunch of money into training. You, you, yep. you, you actually help those people yep, far same. more than you have, you know, even though it's not as obvious, it is something that is, that is better for everyone. And hope I'm, I'm, I'm I'd yep. like no, to say right, that right. we, we would learn this lesson, but we don't, <laughs> it, it just comes up again and again. And, oh, mate. you know, there's a poly in a high vis vest somewhere talking about <sighs> somewhere, you know, 40, everywhere. 40 employees who are going to suffer. <laughs> and it, it is, it is, you know, yeah. you, you feel for these people, but at the same time, you, you're not helping them. You're not helping the country. You've got to think big. You've got to think holistically. Now I'll say too quickly, and we try and be relatively apolitical. We don't we don't resile from having views on policy, but we try to avoid politics. Mm -hmm. um, there are different things. I will say, for what it's worth, I, I'm a I've been pretty critical of the government recently. Mm -hmm. um, fair chance to take a swing at the opposition. The Labor policy with this billion dollar bloody um, fund for in investing in manufacturing oh, is just God's more. Sake picking winners and I get that's I get they're a labor organization I get they care about jobs we care about jobs of course we do there are yeah. there are many many better ways to achieve that than trying to pick winners with a billion dollar fund yeah. it's exactly the mistakes of the car industry all over again yeah um I, I get it I get why they think it's a good idea I get why they want it to be a good idea mm. it's just not and and whether that's political pressure, whether it's union pressure, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, ideological pressure, I don't know. Uh, they're doing some great things. The government are doing some great things. They both also do some terrible things. And this is one where the opposition needs to kind of just say, guys, we've been there. We've done that. There are better ways to support Australians, support Australian jobs, support Australian industry, and frankly, our standard of living than throwing a billion dollars at, at the, the possibility that maybe eventually someone will come up with a better car or a better something else. We've been there and done that for the last 30 years. It's cost us a squillion. They really should just say, we're sad to see it go, but we've learnt the lessons and we're moving on. Mate, I almost don't need to do a rant this week. I think, <laughs> I think we've both had a pretty good one right, right there. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I'm going to do another round anyway. Here we go. <laughs> um, we don't have any sound effects this week, which is a bit disappointing. Oh, Liam is down in... Liam Flanagan, who is the best young Triple M uh, football caller you'll hear, is unfortunately in Melbourne today. Yep. So we're here in Unfortunately the Unfortunately for us. Well, yeah. we're in the studio by ourselves, mm -hmm. which means this podcast will go for a very, very long time. <laughs> but the, but, but comfortable. Liam is with us in spirit, and frankly, we've got to see him next week if we go too long. So... We'll wrap up with a rant sans sound effect. Well, here's, here's what gets my goat. And look, it's an understandable <laughs> one. So I got to, I've got to be delicate given the job I have and the, and the stuff that I do, but you know, <laughs> oh, no. what, what is it? What Sorry, is really boss, bizarre? What, what is really uh, bizarre? I find is that we love, we talked about behavioral biases last week. Um, and, and a big one is, is that, is that confirmation bias. Mm. And we see this kind of stuff all the time where, People will like a certain company, will like a certain company, will talk about it. And then, and then someone becomes aware of the alternate viewpoint, the bear case to the bull or the yep. bull case to the bear. And people get very, very worried about that kind of stuff. All of a sudden it makes things more confusing. It makes things less certain. If there is one thing that sells in this game of ours, mate, it is certainty. So whenever you create 
uncertainty, and we will do it within our organization. The name yep. The Motley Fool, we, we very much, <laughs> you know, we are a Motley crew. Um, yes. Not the Motley crew, unfortunately. <laughs> our, our fans aren't, yeah, they're very different. Um, our but, lawyers would probably say copyright, trademark, Motley, yeah, Fool, or, Motley Crew Incorporated. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, used under license. But, but we, 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 what's really cool about um, our business is that the, the boss doesn't require us to have a house view. So the service you run, you can come out there and you can say, BHP sucks. And I can say, I love it. It's the best thing in the world. And we, we don't have to agree. Yep. But, but it, geez, it does cause some cognitive dissonance amongst people, understandably so. But I, I guess what, the thing that I'd, I'd really like to emphasize to anyone who's investing in the market or thinking of investing in the market is that you have to get very, very comfortable with people disagreeing with you. Yep. Whenever you do anything on the share market, you are by definition taking the opposing view to someone else. Yes. If I want to buy some shares, someone has to sell them to Correct. me. If I want to sell some shares, someone has to buy it. By definition... They have a different point of view. You are seeking it. You're actively seeking out the guy who says, I think you're wrong. Yeah, you you, you want By that definition. guy. Right, you right, right, right. want that guy. And I'm going to make a fortune with those shares. Yes. And he's like, I want to get rid of him. Right. You know? And, and if he loves when you love him, you're not going to, you're not, you're not going to pay a price low enough and he's not going to get a price high enough. Well, he's just not going to sell, right? Exactly. And so, and then to get anyone to sell, you need to, the price is probably going to have to be really, really, really high. So yep. get used to it. And here's the other thing I would say is that when, when, you come across this stuff. It's very natural to dismiss it. You know, if, if I like a particular, and we do this all the time because we're mm. human and it's mm. very hard to avoid, but you and I will be chatting about a company and you go, oh, I like that one too. And oh, isn't this great? Oh, that's so cool. And da, 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 da. and you are the exactly wrong person that I should be speaking to. What I need to much. do is find the guy, <laughs> the girl that totally disagrees with me. Right, right. That is the value. The best, best investors in the world seek out the opposing view. They take it incredibly serious. It doesn't mean they, you know, flip flop around. They, you have to have conviction in this game but you have to you have to um, consider the alternative you have to take it very seriously and you have to be able to very confidently um, uh, uh, stick to your guns in light of that okay but you've got someone smart who's selling mm. you know they're selling mm. why are you so arrogant to believe you're right and they're wrong well, I think one of the, one of the, I forget who said it now, but one of the things that you should do as an investor is that you need to be able to argue the opposing view mm. better than the person who has that view. So if I say I like, uh, Altium, for example, you need to be able to, uh, um, I need to obviously have a very good reason to articulate that. It's yep. a very good, very good reason this to support my thesis. This is a printed circuit board maker. Yeah. Heard of yeah. Well, we, we sold it on our surface recently. So hence, right, okay. hence a little bit of this rant, <laughs> frankly. Um, now we get into the number. Now we get to the this, 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 this is a uh, spleen venting session. Well, look, look, it comes up all the time. And, it, and it, it, it's, it's, So you sold and someone's gone, hang on, other people still like it. Yeah. What's Why going on? Why the hell are you on? selling? Yeah. What's, and it's like, well, I've, I've, I've got a different point of view. So, but what I need to be able to do is someone, if someone says, well, why aren't they? I think it's very, very, very useful skill mm. for me to be able to give a, an honest, candid, and fair interpretation of their argument better than they can. If I can't do that, then I am very, very likely suffering from a whole host of these behavioral biases we talked about last week, and I am probably making a mistake. And when things, or if things start to mm. go wrong, mm. I'm probably going to compound those mistakes. So you have to, this, here's the thing with investing, it, and it's this really fine line. You have to have conviction. Yep. You've got to have, if you don't have conviction, you'll be flip-flopping, you'll be buying, you'll be selling, you'll be changing your mind. It'll be a disaster. You'll lose all your money. You've got to have Guaranteed. faith. The faith, the faith. <laughs> You've got, absolutely, George. Go. You have to have faith. You, <laughs> faith well, you have, to have, you have to have conviction. Yeah. But at the same time, you need to be the kind of person who can change their mind. It's yeah. the whole, when the facts change, sir, 
I changed my mind. John Maynard Keynes, absolutely one of the best, and 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 and, and that that is a they are diametrically opposed right. things, and yet we need to make peace with those. Not so only I, that, you also though, from what you're saying, have to have a an ability to recognise that you are going to have a different view to other people by definition. Yes, and you need to be okay with it. If you're looking for confirmation, yes, then you're going to a not buy anything and b probably not be a very good investor. You, you're going to make all kinds of mistakes. So again, one thing I'll do just to finish this off: the best best thing you can do as an investor is write this stuff down. Why are you buying this share when yep. you're when you you know come home at the end of the day and you talk to your other half and you say, "Honey, we bought some shares in X today," and she goes, "Why?" You need to be able to give a really <laughs> good answer. If you can't, what the hell are you doing? You are investing on hope. You are, you are speculating and it is a disaster. And then not only that, you also be, have to be able to say, now there are people that inevitably disagree with me and their argument would be X. Write it down because what I guarantee you, you know, a month later, six months later, a year later, mm. you will adjust your thinking to preserve this, this idea that you were right. We hate to admit we're wrong. So we will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to rationalize the reason why we're still right, even if the market's moving against us. So we, if you've got it written down, you can look back and say, well, this is the reason I bought the shares. It's clearly not the case anymore. I was wrong. Move on. Andrew, and somewhere in Melbourne, Liam is yelling at the top of his voice. Will you guys please stop this bloody podcast? <laughs> You've been rabbiting on for ages. Yeah. Good call. Let's do that. All right. Mate, uh, let's put the tail on this. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Four Money Podcast, your iTunes, or your favorite Android podcast app. And you should. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a nice big fat five-star rating. Also, go to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. That's it. And leave your email address. We'll send you an email. Awesome, mate. Until next time. Fool on. on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.